from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. On this episode of Newt's World, I am really excited to have Kellyanne Conway, because I've known her, I think, since she got her Girl Scout badge in government. And I've watched her grow and really develop as an extraordinary pollster and an even more extraordinary strategic analyst. In addition, Clarissa and I both think of her as a very close personal friend. She has been a very respected pollster for corporate and Republican clients. You've seen her on television a lot. She is, I think, the first woman manager to win a presidential election in 2016 for Donald Trump and did a great job. In her new memoir, Here's the Deal, Kellyanne Conway takes you on a journey all the way to the White House and beyond. And she describes what it's like to be dissected on national television, how to outsmart the media mob, and how to outclass the crazy critics, how to survive and succeed in a male-dominated industry. Kellyanne, it's really great to have you here. And I should say that you've debuted at number one in the New York Times bestseller list, which is an astonishing achievement for a conservative. So... How does it feel? I mean, you have a number one book. You've done all these different things. You have a remarkable career and a great future. Well, Newt Gingrich, first of all, thank you very much for having me on your podcast and for being a big part of the arc of my career. I talk about that extensively in my book. You are thanked by name. You deserve it. For me personally, you've had such an impact as a leader, as a messenger, as frankly, a patient, shrewd, deliberative, and strategic thinker and doer within the conservative movement in the Republican Party, I learned by watching, I learned by listening, but also people like you can't really have that second career out of office and what you've been able to do so beautifully and so convincingly is make sure that people understand how to connect with what Donald Trump calls the forgotten man, forgotten woman, and forgotten child, to really defy the naysayers and critics and make sure the people who need to hear your message for free are hearing that. And I do talk in the book about, I met you at GOPAC, you know, when I was a baby, I was 21 or 22 years old. I took a job for $8 an hour with Dick Worthlin, who was Ronald Reagan's pollster, Frank Luntz, a fellow student of mine at Oxford University the year before, helped me land that summer job. And they asked me if I wanted to go to GoPack. I was excited. I got to shake your hand. I bought those cassette tapes like other people did and listened to the messages. And, you know, that was 1987 or 88. I believe it was around 1988. 
And then there it is six short years later when you take those messages and it meets the moment and you have those messengers on the Capitol steps on September 27th, 1994, signing the contract with America. And I remind people this year, they say, could this be 1994 all over again? I said, well, it could in a couple of ways. If you have a transformative leader like Newt Gingrich, yes, number one. Number two, if you have these messages written down somewhere that people can look at them, suss them out, compare what you're getting from this man-made disaster that's the Biden-Harris administration, and they believe that you are running for the right reasons. You had a ton of brand new first-time candidates in 1994. I think Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans, Ron and McDaniel, they're doing that again now, doing such a fantastic job recruiting first-time candidates, women, minorities, veterans, small business owners with very diverse backgrounds and a vision for the country. And then finally, you tell people, hold us accountable. These are not campaign promises. This is a vision for the country, and we want to be the architects and executors on that. And then, of course, all the way to your own presidential campaign. But look, in the book, I talk about 1980, 1994, 2016, that Donald Trump comes along 22 years after the contract with America. You've got Ronald Reagan 14 years before that. And I think every decade or so, you have this transformative leader who's willing to do exactly that. People feel like they are outsiders to the system. And if you have that chief messenger, that leader who also is outside of the system, it works. When Donald Trump plucked me to be the campaign manager in August of 2016, I too was an outsider. I talk in the book something that I think professional women will relate to very easily, which is, you know, often being shunned to the side, dismissed, denied by some of the people in the workforce, regardless of gender, but often by other men. And I talk about the Republican consultancy being a walking RICO violation, always the gravy train, getting each other a seat on it. And this is something new that I think you've been a real leader on. It's something I want your listeners to hear because they give money to Republican politics. They give money to these candidates. They should understand that at this stage, we want the thinkers at the consultant level to be much like the candidates, innovators, visionaries, risk takers who have clear, convincing, compelling, persuasive, memorable messages that expand the conservative movement and the Republican Party. It feels great to have a number one New York Times bestseller. I'm going to be very humble about it. This is my memoir, my story. People always want to know the story behind the story. It's really the arc of my career. My personal life as well is in there. I loved being a working mom in Donald Trump's White House. He was a great girl boss, as I call him. These feminists can pretend that they're you know, pro-woman they're only pro some women. And Donald Trump was a great boss to Mercedes Schlapp, Brooke Rollins, Ivanka Trump, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and me. Between us, we have 19 children, 12 daughters, seven sons at the time, between the ages of two and 16. Where else could we work at that level, the highest rank assistant to the president, and be there every day and also feel like we can be there for our children? For all the news media hostility, there's a fascinating difference between apparently the Biden White House, as it's now being portrayed, where people are leaving, including virtually all of their African-American appointees, and saying, look, we don't have a position of responsibility. We're not being given an opportunity. And the disarray therein, which is beginning to actually even affect the national media. But I have to say, we've known each other a long time. I had no idea that when you were seven years old, you were making homemade and peach Nixon buttons. You have to tell the story because you obviously have politics somewhere in your genetic bloodstream. So tell us about the seven-year-old Kellyanne. Yes. Well, thank you. I remember it was the summer of 1974, of course, and the impeachment hearings are going on. I think I was just angry that they were preempting The Price is Right and Search for Tomorrow, which I used to watch with my grandmother, God rest her soul. But no, it's funny that you ask that. People always say, did you come from a political family? What did your father do? Well, my father left when I was three, no child support, no alimony, but we had a loving present relationship for 40 years from the age of 12 when I met him till 52 when he passed away a few years ago, Newt. So that's a great story of second chances, redemption, and love. But growing up in this house with four Italian Catholic women, my mom, her mom, two of my mom's married sisters, they talked about a lot of things, but they really didn't talk about politics. They voted. It was their civic duty, their constitutional right. My Aunt Marie was pretty progressive mad at the George Herbert Walker Bush campaign for saying that Bill Clinton was a draft dodger and was an eighth grade public school teacher. So she probably split her vote over the years. But in 1974, 
I made these homemade impeached Nixon signs and buttons that I put on my smock. And you know what? I think it's one of the only times I ever followed the crowd because I sure the heck didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was happening in the Watergate hearings. I didn't know about the break-ins. We didn't have social media then. But you know, New, I like to say that I was raised to be a conservative without ever having a single political conversation that I can recall. I think that's very common in America where you are moored with family, faith, freedom, limited government, small business owners all around you, veterans, military, military spouses in our family, understanding that this is the greatest country in the world, in history. And I thank God every day that my ancestors chose to come to America as opposed to everywhere else. And, you know, in many ways, we are all the fulfillment, the expansion of that legacy. And so I became a conservative Nobody ever had a political conversation, met Ronald Reagan very briefly when I was 17 when he came to town and was smitten and bitten, even though another Italian Catholic woman, Geraldine Ferraro, was on the Democratic ticket that year in 1984. It's just fascinating. I have to point out, by the way, that when you were seven years old putting on your impeach Nixon buttons was my first race for Congress. So it sort of puts a little bit of our age difference in context, I think. But you went on after having met Reagan. You go on, and part of what you did was attend Oxford University. What was that like to go to Oxford? Well, it was life-changing. I call it the year that separated past from future for me. And I actually remember cutting that out of a magazine and putting it on a poster along with lots of pictures from a year abroad, which included a ton of travel, which many you know, co-eds do, many college students and high school students undertake. And that was new for me. I mean, I had parents who never went to college. I have parents who never traveled internationally. It was brand new for me to even have a passport. So tremendous opportunity. And at Oxford University, I actually met Frank Luntz. I met Boris Johnson through Frank, of course, now the prime minister of England. And, you know, Frank, I've known since I was 19 and I'm 55. So I say I go way back with Frank Luntz and I credit him for helping me start my career in polling and I was a lawyer in between there, a clerk for a judge newt, but went right back into polling with Frank. He paid me just a little bit more than the $8 an hour I had received in that summer internship at Worthland. And then when I went out on my own after you became Speaker of the House, I was encouraged by people like Pat Pizzella and Grover Norquist and John Fund and Frank himself, Pat Rooney, the founder of the health savings accounts, medical savings accounts, encouraged to go out on my own. And I did that. And Frank and I have remained friends and colleagues ever since. But it was a big encouragement to do that after the Republicans took majority control to then try to help implement the policy. So there are lots of political pollsters out there. They only want to know what voters are thinking. I fancied myself more a cultural anthropologist trying to figure out what everybody was thinking. How do you spend your time, your money? What are your aspirations, frustrations? And I took on a ton of clients in non-political America, finding out how people make these consumer decisions every day. We vote once every two to four years but we consume and make decisions like that every single day. So trying to look at the demography, but also, you know, the situational politics. So going to Oxford was amazing because I used it as home base to go travel all around Europe and to see firsthand the wall was still up and Russia was still the communist country before President Reagan took care of that. You still had the effects of that all through Eastern Europe. So fascinating time to be there and learned an awful lot of independence. There was no social media. You just learned a great deal of independence and very pleased to have had that experience. I recommend it to young people. I think it's very helpful for people to both study abroad and it's very helpful for people to get involved in campaigns. But I noticed, for example, that you volunteered in 87 to work on Kemp's campaign. As you know, I was very close to Jack and Jack Kemp and Larry Kudlow and a handful of other people really created the modern supply side economic movement with tax cuts and economic growth. But briefly talk about this. I think your experience explains perfectly why Jack didn't quite become president. Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> it's funny you should say that. Look, it was a crowded field and people are trying to talk about being the heir apparent to the Reagan revolution, the Reagan legacy, of course, and felt that his own vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, was not the obvious heir apparent to, sure, to the Reagan Bush years, perhaps, but not to the Reagan Kemp tax cuts or the conservative movement the way you, and at the time they called you and others, you know, backbenchers in the Congress, Trent Lott. And I remember you served with the first Duncan Hunter and so many others and Jack Kemp and Vin Weber. And it was fascinating because I volunteered on his campaign when I came back from Oxford. I restarted the College Republican Club at Trinity College. It was defunct. 
My friend restarted the College Democrat Club. She's from Massachusetts, where Dukakis would eventually be the nominee. And I was called over to Rayburn 2252 to his office. And I never went back to the campaign. Instead, I worked in his congressional office for a guy named Raul Fernandez as his foreign policy legislative assistant intern. Well, Jack Kemp was leading a delegation to Central America knew at the time, you'll remember the Contras and Sandinistas, Violeta Chamorro and Daniel Ortega. And I was in charge of doing a lot of the administrative stuff. But I think that Kemp was never really able to convert enough of his policy accomplishments and his stewardship, his help of the Reagan agenda. And it's tough to run from the House of Representatives for Congress, that's for sure, particularly in modern politics. But I think in the end, George Herbert Walker Bush got Reagan's third term. And let's not forget, in 1984, when I met Ronald Reagan in Hamilton, New Jersey, Blueberry Capital of the World, knew as a senior in high school, that's when New Jersey was still a competitive state for Republican presidential candidates. Indeed, Reagan Bush went on to win New Jersey and 48 other states, all but Walter Mondale's Minnesota and all but District of Columbia. So it's a pretty telling time. I think you and I had the same experience with the Bush presidency, George Herbert Walker Bush, and that as somebody who had been very, very supportive of Reagan, I was astonished at how aggressively the Bush people shoved the Reagan people out. And it was almost as though Bush had learned nothing in the eight years. I mean, you had a similar experience because you actually had an opportunity after your second year in law school to go to work at the Bush White House. You know, I was at law school at GW, George Washington Law School, which is blocks away from the White House Newt. And I got this opportunity. I had already put my name in to work at the Bush Quail White House. And I'm, to this moment, remain very close to the Quails. And I'm very appreciative of the Bush family and the remarkable public service to this country. And by the time I came through, I was already in law school. And Raul, by then, my boyfriend said, you know what? It's not a big enough job for you to get off your law school trajectory, in my view. And he had also heard my experience that when I interviewed at PPO, Presidential Personnel Office, it seemed like an affirmative criterion to work in the first Bush White House was to denounce Ronald Reagan. I mean, it was an odd litmus test. And I thought it was, you know, at the very least, new, ungrateful to the fact that Bush 41 had been the vice president for eight years to President Reagan. But I also felt it missed the entire conservative zeitgeist and where that was headed. So here we are getting a job offer in the fall of 1989. And then four years later, they lose to Bill Clinton. And two years after that, you come back in and reclaim that Reagan camp, Newt Gingrich mantle. You could actually say we were the fourth Reagan victory. I've heard many people say it about you and for you. There's no question. But why the interruption in between that called the Bush 41 presidency? Read my lips, no new taxes. So look, we're there again, aren't we? In that if we fail to understand what motivates voters, we don't tell voters what's important to them. We let them tell us what's important to them. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Your anthropology comment earlier is such a great explanation of one of your uniquenesses. And you have a story, which I don't know if it's in the book or not, I'm going to ask you to tell it, about the meaning of change for Americans and Applebee's at Times Square, which you told me, it blew my mind because it was so obvious and you could never get it in traditional polling. So just share that for a minute. I don't remember if it made the final editor's cut, but it's a great story. I'm so glad that you of all people would remember it. Here's how it goes. You know, I was in Washington for 20 years from the age of 18. I love Washington College, law school, started my business. George, my husband, he's a partner many years at a law firm in New York. So we did the commuting thing as many couples do when we were first married. When we started to have children, we decided to pick a city. New York won, moved to New York full time. And I said, I'm not going to begrudge the city anymore and think it's just chaotic, filled with unhappy people who wear black clothes all year long, including in the summer. I'm going to learn the city. And I was walking in Times Square one day, running to a meeting in the Reuters building. My client at the time was Liz Claiborne, the fashion company. And I was walking there and I turned the corner and I was met in Times Square, New York, with Applebee's, Olive Garden, Bubba Gum Shrimp, Sabaros, the largest Cold Stone creamer you'll see anywhere. And I said, wow, how could this be? How is it that America saves up its money, comes to the big city to get the New York experience and does exactly what they do back home. Goes to Applebee's Olive Garden. Turns out that Olive Garden has a plaque, the world's largest Olive Garden. And it's about four stories. Can you imagine the rent in Times Square for this? And it made me think we are who we are. We love to say we are revolutionaries. We are change makers. We are independent thinkers. Nobody owns us. And yet, what do we do? We go to McDonald's every night in the minivan and we order number three. We've made it so easy just to be creatures of our own habit that you don't have to articulate the sandwich, just the size of the fries and the flavor of the drink. And I tell people all the time, if you go to Times Square, don't do what you do at home. Go to Joe's Pizza. You get two slices for five bucks and you keep walking and you see great stuff in New York. But it tells you something about human nature. And look, I give Americans credit. In 2008, they did something they'd never done before. Sure, first African-American president. I think that's wonderful in our nation's history. I voted against him, but I'm glad that this country voted for him, for Barack Obama in many ways. But they took a chance on someone who had very limited political experience. In fact, it was an affirmative, positive criterion for Barack Obama against Hillary Clinton. Eight years later, the next time we have an open presidential election, they do the same darn thing. They go for a guy who had no political experience whatsoever against Hillary again. And I give the country credit because all of a sudden, Newt, you tapped into it in 1994, but you had to nationalize that election and you had to recruit dozens and dozens of excellent outsider candidates. At the presidential level, it's harder to do because we want our chief executives to have a ton of experience. We want them to come pre-verified. And all of a sudden, the country in 08, but especially in 16 with Donald J. Trump, said, you know what? The heck with it. Yes, these other people have more experience. Hillary has a ton of it, but it's all the wrong experience. And experience tends to corrupt. And it tends to distance yourself from the citizenry. And they said about President Trump, I think there's a guy, I know who he is. He's not a total stranger to me. But Donald Trump ended up becoming the wish fulfillment presidentially of what voters had told pollsters for decades. 
I went someone who has a ton of experience, but no connection to Washington. And it's pretty remarkable, but I'm glad you remember that. By the way, I've shared that story with Cardinal Dolan in New York City, a friend of ours, because I mentioned the Abercrombie and Fitch one day. It's across from his residence. It's Caddy Corner to St. Patrick's. And I said, could you imagine if you had a line out the door of St. Patrick's that they have for an $80 t-shirt at Abercrombie and Fitch? But anyhow, we all should be aware of human nature. And you know what? New People ask me, don't people lie to pollsters? And I say, well, sure, they lie to pollsters. But remember, they're lying to themselves through pollsters. And you have to be able to suss that out. Make people feel comfortable to tell you that they're not sure about this, that, or the other on policy. And if people say to you two and a half years before the next presidential election, I don't know, accept that. Don't push them. Which way do you lean if you had to do it today? No. I don't know is a very rich insight, and it's one that many of us possess. Well, you know, what's amazing, you had great experience, but then as a young woman in a very tough industry, you started your own polling company at 28 which ought to be an inspiration to virtually every young woman in the country, that if you have gumption and you're smart and you work hard, the sky's the limit. As a young woman in the Republican Party of a generation ago, you were faced with a real problem precisely because so many of the old line Republicans just assumed automatically that if you're an attractive woman, you can't be taken seriously. And of course, with your law degree, that helped. But you really showed a lot of courage going out on your own, becoming an entrepreneur, and convincing people that you're a principal, you're not a subordinate. What was that like to go out and have to pitch? Great point. And I want to say to those young women that you just encouraged and mentored without realizing it by saying you two can do this, they can do it. But there's one other criterion that's important. Winners are people who are willing to lose. You have to be willing to risk failure to succeed, Newt. And that's not in a Hallmark card. That's in life lessons. I have learned far more from the agony of defeat than I have the thrill of victory, and I have had plenty of both. But if you're not afraid to fail, you might just succeed. And you know that firsthand. So you ran for Congress in 74. Did you win? No. Did you win the next time? No. We know the arc of it. Bill Clinton won in 80, lost in 82. Everybody should know. Ronald Reagan lost the first time he ran for governor. He lost in 1976 when he Proposition 1, the big anti-tax movement, lost. But then Proposition 13 passed. I think that the message for everybody is you got to lose. John F. Kennedy lost, I think, what, for class president? You have to be willing to take those chances and lose. What was it like to be 28 pitching business in Washington? Well, first of all, it helped to have a law degree. Even though I didn't want to practice law, it was an affirmative credential. And that credential in a city like Washington, which unlike so many other cities, does not revere youth and energy quite the same way Boston, Philly, San Francisco, Miami do. Washington is a place where seniority rules, where longevity is power and position. It sort of prefers the bald heads and the gray heads, I like to say. And that's fine. But I knew that. And so I had to have some market distinction. You know what, Newt? When I was pitching... I wasn't afraid to be told no. I was disappointed, but I also wasn't afraid to say yes. If someone asks, can you stay later? Can you work this weekend? Can you fly to St. Louis? Raise your hand and say yes. If you keep saying no, people do not see you as dependable and reliable and competent, but learn to accept the word no, particularly when you're younger and just starting out. You will be rejected. You will be passed over. Someone will win that pitch who you think is not as good a pollster as you are or not as smart as you are, didn't deserve the promotion. It's okay. Smile through it. And when they fail, you'll be right there to get the project the next time. The other thing that helped me, CNN made me an offer as their quote. This was what the Chiron said, Newt. Generation X conservative political analyst, my counterpart, Farai Judea, she was the Generation X liberal political analyst. You would never see these Chirons now. But what CNN did in putting me on TV in 1996 was I had a one-on-one audience with important people like you. And United States senators and candidates and directors of marketing all across corporate America. And no longer can my competitors say, oh, you don't want to hire her, roll their eyes. They'd say, I don't know. I saw her on TV last night. She made two points I hadn't thought of. And so not everybody's going to be able to get on TV and have that private audience, but you can do other things to get noticed. You can start a great nonprofit. You can write an op-ed. Don't lose the power of the written word, everybody, just because everything is typed now and texted. You write an op-ed for 800 words that makes sense and has four great solutions in it. 
you will be noticed. I have to say one of the things we did that, because remember, I not only lost twice before I won the seat, but I began the project to be a majority in December of 78. So we lost in 80, 82, 84, 86, 88, 90, and 92. And we coined the term cheerful persistence. It's the only way to explain what we were doing. But I have to ask you, again, something I did not know until the book, as well as I've known you. You actually first met Trump on a condominium board when you were living in one of his condos. I'm very curious. The first time you met him, what was your impression? My impression was, does he really come to all the condo meetings? That's exactly what I said. What happened, Newt, is that George and I bought a unit in Trump World Tower as we were getting married in 2001. It wasn't even built yet. Moved in December of that year, splitting our time between Washington and New York. So by 2006 or so, we're pretty much there full time. And George and a guy named Michael Cohen, that one, helped Donald Trump beat back a challenge by some of the residents who wanted to change the name on the building, wanted to do some things. Anyway, Michael Cohen and George then get big offers from Donald Trump. Michael Cohen comes in as his special counsel and executive vice president. So George is offered a spot on the newly configured condo board. And George says to Donald Trump and this woman, Sonia, who works with him, I'm not going to do that, but I bet my wife Kellyanne would. So they call his wife Kellyanne and I say, sure, I'll do it. And I sat on the board for eight years. And I met Donald Trump. I went to the first board meeting in Trump Tower, and I got there a little early, minding my own business with my tab binder ready to go, and I hear his voice. I didn't even know if he was in New York that day. For all I know, he's building golf courses in Scott, and here he comes, no notes, knew everything about that building, and gave us his vision. I was really impressed. And what happened new, as you know, he would call me you know, once, twice a year, maybe two, three times a year to talk politics, or he'd see me on TV, and he'd pick up the phone. I saw you say this. What do you think of that? Then he hired me in 2011 to do a poll for him. He thought seriously about running for president many times, as you know, beginning in 1980. But in 2011, he thought he should run against Barack Obama in the reelection. My poll showed that would be an uphill climb, especially because people always thought Donald Trump was not serious about being a candidate, just serious about teasing about being a candidate. And I told him then what I told him in 2015, which is... Until you're actually a declared candidate, you have no idea what people really think of you because they say, why would Donald Trump bother with that? He's already Donald Trump. He already has success and fame and power. Why would he do that? And so in 2011, I told him it was an uphill climb that President Obama had advantages that people really weren't keyed in on enough, in my view, in the Republican Party. Obviously, the Romney people all missed it. So President Trump hired another pollster, our friend John McLaughlin, and he did a poll that I think showed Trump a little bit more within striking distance of Obama. And he liked that poll. But anyway, the rest is history. And John and I have both done work for him. What I appreciated was even in 2011, Mr. Trump shared with me a couple stories about his vision. I mean, here's a guy talking about China then. Here's a guy talking about immigration then. Here's a guy talking about trade then. And not unlike your contract with America Newt 17 years before that, Donald Trump was also, like you were doing, he was taking issues that were mired in single digits and elevating them to the top. Too many, quote, leaders are led by the polls. Leaders have to lead people, and then it's reflected in the polls. So to take issues like trade, wasn't even asked in most polling questions, and make that an economic fairness issue. It's not fair that we're shipping our jobs and our wealth overseas. It's not fair that manufacturing is dying, the factories are closed, the storefronts are blighted. And he took that to make that an issue of economic opportunity and fairness to those who don't have a college degree. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. 
For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. You know, I thought part of the brilliance of the 16 campaign was that it was about make America great again, not make Trump great again. And I thought some of that was missing in 2020, that it got to be too much about Trump and not enough about America. And I noticed a difference in terms of your impact. I think you have an intuitive or maybe a learned intuitive sense of where the American people are that makes you part of this Reagan. Gingrich, Trump tradition, if you will. You got to be the campaign manager. It was an amazingly chaotic and complex campaign. Cliss and I first talked to Trump about it, I think, in February of 2015. And it was clear that he kind of had an insight. He had a general direction. He also had all the weaknesses that he still has. And so he's an inevitably controversial person. I mean, as you were coming into the campaign and taking over in the middle of this chaos, what did you think was going to be the key to winning? So, Newt, I write about this in the opening pages of my new memoir, Here's the Deal, because I want people to not just go into Trump's storied, famous office on the 26th floor and our conversation. I wanted them to understand a couple things. Number one is how we did it. And number two, most importantly, that it was Donald Trump, not just who put me in a position, but who said yes. I felt the three things I asked of him, which I'll review quickly in a moment, which is how we won. I felt the three things I asked of him from moment one were not particularly genius points, but the difference was Donald Trump said yes. I had shared a version of these with other campaigns, with the Romney general election campaign, the McCain people eight years earlier. But, you know, they're all just so smart. They're going to win regardless. They don't need new advice, fresh blood. Here's what they were. I said to Mr. Trump, he said, well, you know, everybody says that I'm a better candidate than Hillary. And I said, well, I think that's empirically true. But I've looked at the polls and she's winning. He said, oh, the polls. I said, Mr. Trump, I don't know a billion things about a billion things. I know voters and I know consumers. We're losing in the polls now, but you don't have to. Right now, the election is about you. And he said, I know I get the best press coverage. And I said, well, you get the most press coverage. If you can agree to make this election more about Hillary so that it's not just Trump or not Trump, people will be reminded everything they don't like about her. 62% of Americans had told the ABC News, Washington Post pollsters they thought Hillary Clinton was neither honest nor trustworthy. If that's true, what can possibly follow the but? But I think I'll vote for her. But I want her to have the nuclear code. But I want her to be the commander in chief. No. So we were able to tap into this reservoir of not just bad feeling toward Hillary, but their suspicion that she did think that we're irredeemable and deplorable. And then she said the quiet part out loud that there had been corrupt activities in smashing cell phones or letting this one or that one into the State Department or giving, you know, uranium benefits. So 
he was able to tap into that because she was the true insider and knew females in politics are usually not the insiders. That's changed now, obviously. We have Pelosi and the rest of it, but they're usually seen as the outsiders, fresh blood, new face, incorruptible, beyond reproach, more ethical, consensus builders, unifiers. Nobody saw Hillary Clinton that way. So that was a benefit for us. Number two, I said to President Trump, and we need to do this again, Newt. This is advisable for 2024. It was missed in 2020. I said, her blue wall is real. Let's focus on the states, probably 10 or 11 at the time. Let's focus on the states that Obama-Biden won twice with more than 50% of the vote, where Hillary is not above 50% and staying there in any credible polling. And number three, most importantly, Newt, that a Republican had won statewide for governor and or senator. So I'm not talking about Oregon or Washington State. I am talking about Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, Nevada, Colorado, some which we didn't win. But we were able to focus on that because they're not allergic to Republican leadership. In fact, when it comes to choosing a chief executive or a senator, they went Republican. And then I also asked him if I can look at the data differently, if we can ask some questions that weren't just a straight up silly demographic questions. Everybody can do that. Newt, he said yes to all three. And I also told him we needed somebody else in the C-suite. It ended up being Steve Bannon, I think even more importantly, Dave Bossie as a deputy campaign manager, brilliant strategist. And, you know, Bannon was very helpful, obviously, too. But he said yes to everything right away. Who does that? Well, I can tell you who doesn't do that. The Mitt Romney people, the John McCain people, the Jeb Bush people. And so thank you for giving me the time to answer that question strategically with the facts, because we need to take that lesson and go forward again. Those states are still swing states. The people are still very divided in terms of Republican or Democrat for their elected officials. And we will be looking at those same states again in 2024. Let me ask one question about the election. I thought the most amazing single moment of the campaign was right after the sports talk thing had come out and everything was difficult. And some Republicans were saying he ought to get off the ticket, et cetera. And he was faced with the debate with Hillary. And he ends up with the four women who had accused Bill of sexual assault. I don't know if this is too confidential, but who thought of that? I mean, that was such a positioning that just stripped away everything that Hillary had planned to do. I watched it that night and I thought, wow, talk about guts. It was gutsy and it paid off, I think, in many ways. My conversation with the president the night before, really in the wee hours, he had seen all these cable news screaming headlines, Newt, that they're going to force him off the ticket, embarrass him off the ballot, extract his name the way people were taking his name off the buildings in New York because Trump derangement syndrome is real. They were going to rip him off the ballot too. And he said, can they do that? Basically like, oh, should we get ahead of that? And I said, no, of course not. Because, you know, Donald Trump is not a quitter, of course. He was going to stay in regardless. And I said, no, they can't do that. They can't print new ballots. There are some people who have unendorsed you. They want it to be Mike Pence and Paul Ryan on the ticket. But most importantly, I'm going to break some news here. It's not in the book. You asked who thought of that with the accusers. It had been thought about for the first debate at Hofstra for September 26th because Mark Cuban was going to show up and sit there as a guest of Hillary in the front row to try to mess with Donald Trump. And he said, well, we're going to put somebody there. And somebody came up with the idea of the, you know, it might've been Roger Stone who wasn't there, but I think he was in contact with people. Could have been Steve Bannon, Dave Vossi. But the whole idea was to sort of like, who would really rattle Hillary? And Trump himself decided against it. And what's fascinating about that Hofstra debate on September 26th, the first debate, the second debate was October 9th, almost two weeks later. And you have Access Hollywood two days before that. What's fascinating is go back and watch. Donald Trump had planned, if he needed to, to sort of go after Hillary and the way she had treated those women. So it's one thing to say President Clinton sexually harassed or assaulted them. It's quite another to talk about the way Hillary treated those women. Remember James Carville famously said, you drag a $20 bill through a trailer park, you don't know what you'll find. Right before Bill Clinton paid $800,000 in 1998 money to Paula Jones. That's a big pile of cash. So instead, Mr. Trump pulled his punches. He never did that with Hillary. He said, you know, I was going to go there. I was going to say some things tonight, Hillary, but I see your family sitting there. I won't do it. People asked me about that in the spin room and many days later. And I said, well, he was being gracious. He's a gentleman. But some of us were disappointed that he hadn't gone for her jugular the way we had planned and gone for her jugular, the way she had gone for his over the money his father gave him to start his business. So 
guess what? The right time was the second time that you're talking about. And we were ready for that. And I got to tell you, Newt, I was in the room in the pre-debate press conference with those women, Kathleen Willey and Paula Jones. There they were sitting. And when you saw the young embeds, the press that was traveling around with the Trump campaign, walk in the room, they had no idea who these people were. No idea. I remember looking at their face. The kid from CBS is looking, huh? And they had no idea who these are. They're not students of modern history, I guess. But it paid off. It paid off because, as I said to Mr. Trump at the time, listen, you said it on that tape, but Bill Clinton did it. And there's no way we're going to let these Republicans who are not endorsing you throw the whole damn thing to Hillary Clinton. You also made a side point I just have to take a minute on. With the exception, maybe, of Lincoln and Andrew Jackson, nobody has had the continuous beating that Trump has had from an entire national establishment that from the minute he became real has been mobilized to hate him. I recently wrote a piece where I described, you know, if the Russian hoax had never been perpetrated and if the FBI and the Justice Department had never played like it was real, you'd have had a totally different Trump presidency. And I think it's hard, even for you and I, who we both know him and Calista really likes him a lot, and we knew him out at the club here in Washington, the notion of all the things he's endured to serve the country is astonishing. And despite everything the media has done so far in this off year, Trump has endorsed 187 candidates. They've had 102 decisions so far in primaries. His side won 95 and lost seven for a 93%. I don't know of any person out of office who has had that kind of nationwide impact. What do you think that means? It means the America First agenda is the right agenda. And we already knew that, but it's been brought into sharp relief, Newt, with this Biden-Harris man-made disaster of a White House. I almost feel like they're governing on spite. So clearly, they're the Keystone Cops. They can't get anything right. No credible messengers, no great messages. You said earlier a harrowing fact that something like 1921 staffers of color have left the Biden-Harris White House. She's lost at least 13 or 14 senior staffers. She's the first female vice president, first vice president of color, first female vice president of color. And she can't hold on to staff. These are dream jobs. She's turned into nightmares. And I think part of this is, but they seem to be governing on spite. Trump did it. I'll undo it. Trump liked it. I hate it. And they don't realize that being blinded by spite or Trump derangement syndrome, or even blaming him for your own shortcomings is no way to run a country. And what I think about President Trump's record in the primary so far. And some of those losses were very unique to the candidates, and some of them were very close losses. But the 93% record of endorsements means that people are still running on the Donald Trump America First agenda. And you can expect that to continue. If I'm a betting woman, I believe he'll run again for president. I think he'd rather announce sooner rather than later. It's great to be the kingmaker, but it's even more fun to be the king. You can get more done more quickly. But whoever runs, let's just say for whatever reason, President Trump says no, whoever runs will need to run on that America first agenda. There have been very few, not even a handful of candidates this time running as Republicans, new in the primaries at every level in every state who have not run on the America first agenda and they've lost, they've been whooped. So it tells you an awful lot. It tells you that he didn't erect a traditional conventional political campaign. He built a movement and it's based on policy. Forgotten man, forgotten woman, forgotten child. That's a real thing. The forgotten child, look at all the gains now in school choice and charters and educational freedom and people rejecting screen time at school time, masking seven-year-olds, all of this nonsense, the woke curriculum, the school board elections. That is the most elected position in our country. Roughly 95% of school board seats are elected. And we have people running all over the country to really make a difference. So it's been transformative. I believe it's no different than you know, when you left Congress, you left the speakership and nobody said, oh, good, Newt's gone. We'll get rid of his agenda. They continue it. And we barred from an awful lot of that even in 2016. There's no question. I think people, if they will get Here's the Deal, a memoir, I think they will be opening up a very personal, very human insight into politics. I think it is remarkably educational and it's very, frankly encouraging. We as a country can, in fact, solve all these things. And I think that Democrats are headed towards maybe 
the most stunning repudiation since 1920. But part of that is your good sense and your intuitive understanding of humanness, that these are not numbers, they're people. And I want to thank you for joining me, for talking so personally about your life in politics. Calista and I both just love seeing you on TV, and I regard you, you know, as one, I don't know how to say it's quite right, but to whatever degree you think I have been a mentor, I regard you as one of the best of all my protégés. You are indeed, and I learn from you every day. And God bless Calista and you. Thanks for giving me the platform today, Newt. And look, just to end on this, we are America. We're resilient. We can solve these problems. I think what's different right now is people aren't just saying it can get better. They're saying it was better not that long ago. How do we get back there? Thank you to my guest, Kellyanne Conway. You can get a link to buy her new book, Here's the Deal, a memoir on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com.